This week's podcast features the spectacularly gifted columnist and writer Catelyn Moran, author of How to Be a Woman, the novel How to Build a Girl, and the two global bestsellers Moranthology and Moranifesto. Here she is in 2016 talking to Stephanie Merritt in Hey on Why about the internet being like a drunken toddler, about heroes with clay feet and what expectations you could have of a revolution today. She's super smart and wise and has a compassionate encouragement that you long to share with everyone you care about. Imagine if Maya Angelou had been born in Wolverhampton in the 1970s, or if Thomas Paine had the stand-up smarts of Ellen DeGeneres. And of the three pieces of advice she'd have for her younger self, well, absolutely go with all of them. Social media is an incredible thing. Like, kind of, I like to think if you, if you think of the world, if you saw it from space, and if you could see connections happening online, it would look as if, you know, for, for the last, you know, 10,000 years, the world has been in darkness. And first of all, you know, then we get telegraphs and then we get, you know, uh, radio and television. And then suddenly the internet. And suddenly people across the world can communicate with each other unmediated for the first time in history. So the first thing you notice is no one feels alone. Immediately groups start to coalesce. People talk about things in a way they didn't um, talk about things before. And they press agendas and they, they agitate for social change. Things like, if you look at the way that uh, various emancipation projects have worked over the last century. If you look at uh, universal suffrage or votes for men and for votes for working class men, you know, that took arguably all of human history up until the beginning of the 20th century to come about. Then the suffragette movement and votes for women, that sort of took another like sort of 30 years, you know, depending on how quickly it rolled out. Then gay rights, uh, then civil rights in the, in the 1950s, that took like maybe sort of 15, 20 years of marching. Then gay rights in the 1970s with Stonewall, we managed to do that and sort of we managed to get equal marriage in 30 years. And then trans rights, nowhere on the agenda, three or four years ago and suddenly there's one TV show that you get uh, uh, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine, you get Caitlyn Jenner uh, uh, transitioning and suddenly that's a huge agenda immediately, you know, within two years of that being a huge thing just simply on social media. Um, there have been legislation changed all over the world for people to be able to define their gender on their passports. So, so social media allows these things to come to the fore really quickly and allows people to talk about the things that concern them the most and allows previously disparate groups that felt lonely and that they were the only people to join together and see how big they are and how much they can change things. And if you saw the way that these connections are happening, if you looked at the Earth from space, it would look like a, you know, it looks like a big brain, basically, and you'd see these golden schemes of communication happening and lighting up and the world gradually connecting itself and talking to itself for the first time. And that's an extraordinary thing, that we finally are able to talk to each other and find each other and find out what we think and find out what we feel and find out what our priorities are. But the problem with social media is so many people who are on it, and there are so many places written about this will attest, is that it's a very young technology. You know, this is, if, if it's a brain, it's a, it's a newborn brain. It's like a baby's brain. And the internet, and particularly social media, often acts like a little baby or a toddler. It will suddenly get really upset about something, or it'll suddenly get really angry about something. It will throw a huge tantrum. It'll be throwing, you know, hitting people and, and screaming and shouting. And then it can be very quickly distracted by a picture of a cat or talk about lunch. <laughs> so social media is a baby now. Um, we need to, you know, you get a lot of people going, well, I'm not going to go on it or, you know, it needs to be regulated or maybe this is not the way forward. But it's at the very beginning of a process. It will grow. It will get older. It will get more mature. And very often the medium is the message. And, you know, at the moment, something like Twitter is very staccato. It provokes an instance of adrenaline 
bursting you when you're on Twitter and these messages come up and you can't filter them because you see it all there. It's like being shot in the head with people's thoughts. And it provokes a flight or flight response in people who are reading it, which is why these huge arguments break out. Everyone's really over-adrenalized. Plus, I read a study that said um, when you're online, your social inhibitions are lowered to the point where it's like you've had two pints. So... <laughs> If you understand that when you're online on social media, you're basically in the pub at about 10 o'clock on a Friday, um, <laughs> which explains why there are so many fights, why there are so many people getting off with each other, and why very often people will try and show you their penis. That's just... <laughs> that's what that is. Um, but it will grow, and I suspect that we will come up with new ways of communicating with each other that won't be so pugilistic and will have matured. And I suspect a lot of that will really depend on whether women get into tech and start programming and start forming technology in a way that works for women. It's clearly very male-based at the moment, and the statistics on women who get into programming are still incredibly low. It's still something like 90% of, of people who are out there and programming these big platforms are men. And this is why women, you know, you, you know, men and women, talk to your girls, get them to code. You know, this is the language of the future. This is what's shaping our perspective of ourselves, who gets to talk, how we talk, how we talk about progress and change. And if girls don't know these languages, if girls don't know how to code, it's as if we knew that in 10 years' time, everyone was going to speak Chinese, that was going to be the universal language, and no girls were learning it, only boys. So this is, this is one of the key things that I would say is incredibly important for, you know, for women and, and all other unrepresented minorities. Get in there and code, form the future. Plus, there's a lot of money in it. <laughs> Bitch gotta pay rent is the first rule of feminism. So the, these movements that start online and, and that we're often seeing reflected in some of the groups that you mentioned there and that reading, some of the sort of more um, grassroots-based movements that we're seeing here and also in the States, great kind of groundswell of feeling for Bernie Sanders. Um, is it young people who are... You, are you finding predominantly that it's young people who are responding to the things that you write and, and a younger generation who are looking for different ways to do things? Yes, I mean that. When I first started writing, I thought it would be women of my age reading my stuff and going, "Yes, I remember being a teenager. Christ, it was horrible. Thank God we are older and we can buy our own wine." And um, <laughs> and they were the first wave of people who started reading my stuff. But then it suddenly it was it was young people. It was you know particularly teenage girls. And you realise what an awful thing it is to be a young woman at the moment. If the um, if you looked at the media at the moment and the way that women are treated, if you were a 12-year-old girl on the cusp of puberty and you knew that the next thing that was going to happen was that you were going to be a woman and you were going to start bleeding and even if you became incredibly successful in your field and became you know, world famous, you would still have circles of shame around you in the Daily Mail pointing out your fat toes, um, you would just go, you know what, I don't want to apply for that job. Um, I don't want to grow up and be a woman. And if you see the rocketing rates of you know, eating disorders, uh, medication, depression, anxiety that's happening amongst young girls at the moment, you know, that's because we're making it look awful to be a woman, uh, which is, and I think why they, you know, why I get a lot of girls reading my stuff, because I am, you know, even though there's insane amounts of bullshit, and you know, can fill carts with the amount of bullshit there is to be a woman, I still think it's the best thing to be. I think we are where the game is. I mean, let's, let's just do a little list about why it's great to be a woman. Um, we can think about more than one thing at once. Um, <laughs> we, unlike men, do look good with a bun in our hair. <laughs> We have multiple orgasms. We, you know, we can come all night. That's, you know, in a sexy, sexy world, you look at men and you're just like, ping, that's it. Was that it for you? Was that? Because I can be here for another five hours. This is, sex is great for me. But the key thing is we are a culture enthralled to the new and women are a new thing. We are still an undiscovered planet. You know, we are a continent that has not been mapped. 
If you see where, in, in How to Be a Woman, I was just talking about how you can tell when things are changing because it hits pop music first because that's the quickest uh, cultural responder because it's very quick to put out a single, it's very quick to put out a video. And at the moment, all the biggest artists in the world are women. That's where all the heat is. You know, it, it's Gaga, it's Adele, it's Katy Perry, it's Rihanna, it's Lord. it's all about the women. Then after that, you get TV. And when I was writing that, I was like, it'll be TV next. Um, and, but it hadn't happened, but I was like, that's what will happen next. Women will take over television. Well, now, Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer, I couldn't have, if I'd lain down with an opium pipe and, and a truck of optimism, I would never have foretold how brilliant the rise of Amy Schumer and how perfect it would be. This is a woman doing like feminist polemic sketches about rape and makeup and, you know, your last fuckable day and when you stop being attractive and stuff that are getting 20 million hits on YouTube. This is like, this is my feminist wet dream. You know, the revolution is funny. It's brilliant. She's so amazing. And then it goes into film. And, you know, we can see now that, you know, increasingly sort of, you know, if it's not a huge Superman franchise, then the only other films that are getting made are about weird girls who are a bit funny and a bit inappropriate. You know, kind of women are where the heat is because these stories have not been told. We have a amazing capital because our stories have not been told. We are an undiscovered thing. And the great thing is, you know, you think it's a bad thing. Everything that you think is bad is good. This would be one of my, my, my lessons that I would try and tell anybody. So, so much about what it is to be a woman is taboo. It's bad, it's shameful, it's dirty, it's horrible, it's dangerous. Taboo is just another word for unused material. <laughs> just <laughs> shit that no one else has done. And if you're the first one to talk about it, everyone will be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Suddenly you will have half the world's population going, thank you. You're talking about, for instance, to, to, to illustrate how little about women is still talked about. If you have a bath and you get in the bath and you're in the bath and you play with the rubber ducky and you have a great time in the bath and you get out of the bath, about 20 minutes later, suddenly, some water will come out. Just <laughs> <laughs> the faint smell of radox. What? What do we hurt? But there isn't a name for that. <laughs> I've never heard that spoken about anywhere ever. When I did that live for the first time, I was kind of like, just before I said it, I was like, I might only get one person laughing, and that. <laughs> And that might be someone clearly sitting on a massive pad with no pelvic floor whatsoever. <laughs> Three quarters of the room were like, yay, bathwater, I know that. That's, you know, that's, that's a thing. So we, we don't, and the same with masturbation. I keep being asked, like, which, you know, why I've kicked off two books, you know, massively talking about masturbation, why in the sitcom we have masturbation, it's just kind of, you know, you know, why are you talking about masturbation so much? But when I was growing up, I, when I discovered masturbation and realized how amazing it is, it was like, wow, this is free. This is... <laughs> This has no calories in it. It's really chilling me out. This is, this is extraordinary. But in all the books I was reading, it was never mentioned anywhere. I'd be like, I'd be reading Jane Eyre, and she's like, you know, she's there in the castle with hot Mr. Rochester, and she fancies him, and she's alone in that turret at night. But I'm waiting, turning the page, waiting for Jane slipped her hand underneath the sheets and started fapping whilst thinking about his lovely craggy face. Nothing. Like, nothing in the <laughs> railway children? Like, kind of like... <laughs> Nothing in Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm literally wearing my fingers down to the bone every night with this incredible new hobby. And it got to the point where I was like, have I invented this? Am I... Am I the white master general? Am I... Am I the masturbator? And is this... Is this me? But it's not. Um, so, you know, so th this, this is why I write about these things, because it's just... Because it's fucking funny, for starters. And... 
And, uh, you know, again, you know, if I had some advice to teenage girls, it would be, you know, three things that would be very good for you. One, take long country walks, get a bit of air in your lungs. Uh, two, always agitate for the revolution. And three, masturbate. You know, it really takes the edge off. <laughs> takes the edge off those bad years. So, hello, hey. <laughs> this is... It's the Wahey Festival now, but... Did Yanis Varoufakis talk about this? <laughs> My solution for the economic crisis in Greece is just to knock one out. <laughs> but maybe that would help. Maybe, maybe all the UN and the, the International Monetary Fund just need to quietly go and sort themselves out before they sit around the table. I'd be a bit more flexible about these things. So that... that <laughs> I'm just overexcited because Benedict Cumberbatch was on this stage before. It's just kind of like, whenever Benedict Cumberbatch has been at a festival, I always feel the slipstream of the excitement. I'm just kind of... Has he left some pheromones, possibly? I can it? smell Cumberbatch, can you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that makes it sound as if you are optimistic for, for young women. But yes. actually, you know, there, is, there are now all these avenues opening up in, in the arts, in the media, in politics, possibly. We, we may soon have a female president, let's... Yes, please, so. that would be good. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are people out there now who, girls of your daughter's age, have as role models, and you have become one of those role models for, for a lot of young women. Um, are you conscious now that when, when you're writing that you are giving advice to, or giving wisdom to, to girls of that age that you wish that you had known? Oh, God, hugely, yeah. Now, when I was writing How to Build a Girl, I wrote it knowing that... Because when I'm writing, I think it's really interesting. I love talking to other writers and going, where do you imagine yourself being when you're saying this stuff? Because I read a lot of writers, and it sounds like... And I love a lot of writers who are like this, but it seems like they take all their talent and all their words and all their ideas, and they use them to make a big stage and to give themselves elevation to be able to stand and say something. And that's great. That's a rock star pose, and I like that. I like a lot of rock stars, but... The way I write is very different. I imagine that I'm standing next to the person who's reading this with my arm around them going, okay, let's talk. Come on, this is, this is a bag of shit, isn't it? Like, kind of, particularly with women, like the way that women are addressed so often, you know, in, in, in culture uh, and in media is just basically just kind of like, you know, in magazines and stuff. It's basically just like, sort yourself out, love. Just kind of, you know, you should buy this handbag and, you know, think about your minge. Just kind of, you know, just give it a trim. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of... It's sort of seeing women as a list of problems rather than being a potential source of joy and revolution and strength and incredibleness. So, so when I was writing How to Build a Girl, I was, I was imagining that I was writing it to a teenage girl, but I didn't realise until I f literally finished it and put out that last cigarette in an ashtray that was like this, um, that I'd been writing it to myself because it was everything I wish I'd known when I was 16. I could have just knocked out five years of agony in one go if I just read this book. So I always wanted to write useful books. So I didn't go to school, I was educated at home, and everything that I know is from reading nearly every book in my library with my eyes, not audiobooks, which is cheating. Um, <laughs> and I was very certain about this to the librarian, I'm going to read them with my eyes. Um, and I liked the useful books, because if you're reading a good book, a good author should put everything they know into that book. They should put all of their life and everything they know up until that point in that book so that when you read it, it's like you've eaten 
their life. So you've got your life and knowledge and theirs. And then if you read another great book like that, you've eaten two lives. So now you've got three lives of experience and so on and so on. And so, you, you know, this is where you get the wisdoms from and particularly women writing to other women. You know, we want to pass this on. I was watching this amazing documentary a couple of weeks ago on the National Geographic Channel about there was a women-only language in China and the last ever woman who spoke it had recently died. And the idea was that this was a language that only women knew and they would, and it was only a written language and they would embroider advice onto a tablecloth that would be given on the wedding night to women that would tell them all about contraception and what childbirth would be like and what sex would be like and all the advice that they could give them in this women-only language that their husbands wouldn't understand, but they'd be standing there reading the tablecloth going, hmm, okay, that means I'll have a baby. I don't think I would like to do that. Um, and I love the idea of a women-only language, women, the women's internet that in, you know, existed before the internet that I felt from the authors that I loved. Um, and so usefulness and empowerment and making people feel they could... Because everybody wants to change things. And the problem that I find, and you know, it, was, it was starting when I started to write my manifesto, which is kind of my manifesto for how I changed the world, uh, was uh, it, people were talking about revolution then and talking about changing things. But what I've, how I've noticed that developed since it came out is that people are starting to disbelieve in politics. People think that revolution is overthrowing democracy just by not voting, by going, I don't like... Mm -hmm. Politicians. I don't like professional politicians. I'm going to vote for a maverick like Donald Trump. I'm, you know, I'm going to vote for someone who doesn't talk like a politician like Jeremy Corbyn. And this is a revolt against the system as it is at the moment. And I understand that. But I think because, particularly because it's so fueled by social media, that is again a very adolescent and childlike point of view because the chances of us inventing a better system than democracy really quickly seem quite small. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm all about looking at the system that we've got and trying to make it better. And the key thing for that is trying to make, talk about big issues accessible to everyone so everyone feels like they can talk about it and take part in it and become part of that process. Because at the moment, if you said that, you know, if, you, if your daughter or son came downstairs and said, Mother, I've decided to become a politician, you would probably look at them as if they just said, Mother, I've decided to become a massive pervert. <laughs> You know, we've really devalued the current political system. And it's a system that should work. You know, these, you know, these people are our public servants. We choose them, we vote for them. They, they come up with our ideas and, and we vote them into parliament. But so many people don't want to take part in that system that we're getting to a point now where, you know, I, I really fear for the next six months, the next year, the next two years, mm. people are revolting against the system without having any alternative in place. And I'm like, let's just take the current system we've got and improve it. That's how I feel about the EU. That's like... Mm. So many people, up to three, um, have said to me, what do you think about the EU referendum? And there are two things. First of all, I'm furious with David Cameron that he's made a problem with his party, a problem for all of us in the middle of summer. This is... Who has been quacking on about whether we should have a referendum on, on Europe for the last 20 years? A small, elderly section of the Tory party. David Cameron, rather than going in and confronting these people and sorting out a disciplinary matter within his own party, went, well, let's see what the people think. And suddenly we, in the middle of picnic season, have to work out <laughs> the future of fucking Europe. I mean, at, at a point where it would be an enormously good idea to be not having to think about the future of Europe. The refugee crisis is the biggest crisis that Europe has faced since the Second World War. On top of that, if you look at the history of Europe before the EU, it was war, 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 war. We invent the EU, suddenly it's just a couple of squabbles about how many bananas are allowed to be in a bunch. You know what? I will take, you know, 
I will take arguments about kind of, you know, pettifogging EU bureaucracy over war, 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 which is what we had before. So, so, you know, these are the things. So I'd rather go in and improve the EU, which is clearly, you know, bent and corrupt and wasteful and ridiculous, but the idea behind it of everybody being together, that's a great idea. They're basically saying, let's have a party. I'm pro that idea. <laughs> Well, actually, and you talk in the book about um, some of the obstacles to revolution, and one of those being cynicism, that, that, there's, that we approach revolution, we approach big changes through little steps, as yes. you were saying before, and actually, there's a, a huge tendency that if somebody doesn't deliver a perfect solution immediately that covers all bases and solves everything for everybody, then it, it, it isn't worth bothering with. And, and you have a, a lovely line in here about... about cynicism and about the problem with shaming idealists and yes well there's two things well first of all if you become cynical it's usually cynicism is usually a defense from someone who feels inexperienced and young as jejun and you sort of you put on this this armor of cynicism in order to protect yourself and people going you know you are young and you know nothing the problem with armor it will initially protect you when you're all kind of cynical and like hey you know kind of like i'm a rock star i'm cynical i don't need to care about things that will protect you initially but the problem with armor particularly if you put it on when you're very young is that you cannot grow in armor you know you cannot dance in armor uh, you know, you need to be able to expand and you need to have the balls to be optimistic and to be able to go, I got it wrong, and to be able to go, my heroes are flawed. This is a massive thing, and again, you know, because it's because social media is so young, but we have this huge thing now that when someone has done something, you know, something incredible generally in their life, but they make one huge mistake, we go, no, but they must be trashed and burnt, they are over. For instance, Jermaine Greer is speaking here. Now, Jermaine Greer was a huge hero of mine when I was growing up as a teenage girl. The female eunuch genuinely changed my life in a way that I didn't expect it would, because when I bought it, I bought it because the classic cover has basically a pair of tits on it, and I thought there'd be some porn in there. And... <laughs> When I read it, I found feminism, and that's maybe the story of my life. Um, <laughs> so maybe Jermaine, you know, so Jermaine Greer has done all these incredible things. Now, recently, what she's said about the transgender movement, I completely disagree with. I think she's said some, some very wrong-headed and hurtful things, uh, you know, that are not useful, and I don't agree with what she's done. But I see, you know, a generation of younger feminists going, well, that's it, she's over. We, you know, everything that she said, we throw out. And that's not the way you change things. If we're constantly reducing people who've generally done good things to rubble, we stand on rubble, we never progress. And you have to be able to understand that your heroes will be flawed and they will do wrong things. And my theory behind this is it's all down to fruit and veg. Um, <laughs> this is a generation that you only see perfect fruit and veg in shops. You know, when I was growing up, you'd, you know, you'd see a pear and it'd have a bad bit in it, you just cut out the bad bit and go, but there's still good eating on this pear. Um, <laughs> because of the way that supermarkets do things now, you only ever see the perfect pear. And if you saw a pear with kind of like a bad bit on it or a misshapen carrot, you'd be like, that carrot is bad. Um, you know, we need to be able to just cut out the bad bits of our heroes and use the useful bits. That's, that's a non-wasteful way of using human progress and thought, you know, and intellectualism and academic progress. Um, so that's very important. And the other thing is that we, again, tend to only look for perfect uh, heroes and politicians and thinkers. Uh, particularly in feminism, because this is you know, what I spent the last five years doing, we want a feminist superhero to come along who has the answers to everything, like a feminist Jesus. And she's going to write the book that will be applicable to, to how many people are in the world? 3.3 billion people in the world, half the world's population, women. That book has to apply to everyone. It has to have all the answers in it. Or if you've made a TV show, it has to include everyone and it'll be about 
all of the women. Or if you make a film, it has to tell the entire history of this thing with everybody being represented. And if it, my rule in how to, build, um, how to be a woman was always, you can always tell if some sexist bullshit is afoot by asking, are the men having to do this? And if we flip reverse this and say, are the men waiting for one book or one film or one TV show to come along that will represent 3.3 billion men in the world? It's about all the men in the world and all their problems, all their solutions. We would never ask for that. We're not waiting for that. We have to understand that any movement towards change and progress, and here I specifically talk about feminism, is a patchwork quilt. Everybody will do their little bit. You know, there are, there are subjects that I know about in feminism that I can do my little bit about, and, you know, and I do them and I contribute them to, to the pack. And then people who know about other subjects will do their little square, and slowly we stitch them all together and we make this big quilt of change. It's a collaborative effort, but it's, it's a very childlike, and again, it reminds you how young social media is and how there aren't really any elders on there with any perspective and any history. You've got teenagers and people in their very early 20s who basically run the tone of social media, and their view is, unless someone is perfect, we discard them. And when you get to the haggy old age of 41, uh, you, can, you have a bit more perspective on that and just go, no, that's okay, we'll just cut out the bad bits and use the good bits to make a lovely pie of progress. Thank you for listening. Hey Festival podcast is supported by our friends at Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and you can find more full events, 7,000 in all, over on the Hey Player pages of our website. This week of all weeks, watch out for the announcement of the first digital festival which we're running from the 18th to the 31st of May 2020. Join us there too. It'll be a blast. <laughs>